Well, this week has been very interesting and very encouraging in many ways. It's been interesting just politically. If you've watched the Speaker of the House thing, if you like the Constitution, you like history, that's been fascinating to me. We don't have, ever really see a whole lot of drama like that. But what's been encouraging this week is what we've seen regarding one person. And Jay, if you could go ahead and bring that up on the screen. Uh, we learned about someone we had never heard of. Uh, even though I follow football, I had never heard of this gentleman. I had never, only knew the quarterback of the uh, Buffalo Bills. But on a game last week, I believe it was Monday night, this young man, Damar Hamlin, we learned is his name, uh, tackled another player, very normal football play, did not look anything different than anything, nothing illegal was done, nothing excessive. But when he got up, he was up for about three seconds, and he just collapsed backwards. Um, and in a way where you could tell something was wrong, uh, the football players immediately sensed something was wrong and called over the training staff. The training staff came over immediately. You could tell there was something serious going on there. Then all of a sudden you saw right there on the field, um, not only the medical staff, but a large number of not only the Buffalo Bills football players, but the Cincinnati Bengals football players gathered around the scene on their knees in prayer. Now, if you ever catch glimpses of video at the end of football games, a lot of times uh, some of the players of faith will gather around after a game and pray, and you hear about prayers in the locker room. But to see that many people praying on the field and clearly there was an extremely serious situation, some injury beyond uh, what anyone had really seen on the field before. Um, to see that kind of response was amazing. If you're watching the broadcast on ESPN, one of the commentators spontaneously just led the group at the table in prayer. That's what you see in the bottom picture. And he's prayed to God directly for about 40 seconds. That is unheard of on national TV, and to do so spontaneously. So I thought this week, when do you ever even see prayer on TV where a large number of people might be part of it? You might see that at a presidential inauguration where some will pray. Many times those are kind of speeches, though, I feel. But to see genuine, authentic prayer led in that way and to be, see that many people respectful of prayer, in my 58 years, I've never seen such a thing, and especially when there's controversy over whether or not you can pray at school or sports coaches can lead the group in prayer, things like that. To see this was an amazing thing. But it seemed to be what the moment demanded. Someone collapses and clearly there's something wrong with him. And to hear that CPR was done right there on the field, uh, that he was taken to the hospital and was in critical condition, he still remains such, but clearly there's been a lot of improvement. Everybody is thankful for that. I don't even need to go on. You know the scene. You know the story. And it's a wonderful, wonderful story and account of what happened in the life of a very um, amazing young man who was amazing in his life before this. I learned a lot about him. His sense of devotion to his community, uh, his charity concerning toys. He was a man of faith already. A lot of things to really appreciate in the story, and hopefully we'll get to appreciate more as time goes on. But I was already planning a short series of lessons on prayer. I thought, wow, this just amazingly uh, ties in. And this morning we're going to begin looking at prayer, four lessons about the greatest opportunity on earth. 
Uh, there may be more lessons, but the fundamental things I want to cover is this morning, why pray at all? What is, what is this act of prayer that we're engaging in? Uh, what to say when you pray? If you are committed to praying, what, what do you actually say in the prayer? Is there something you're required to say? Are there things you need to include? Are there times where prayer will be very short? These are very legitimate questions people have about prayer. Um, how to pray. Uh, can you pray standing up? Do you need to get down on one knee like we saw so many people do? And many people will gather around and kind of huddle together in prayer. We see very many different postures in prayer. Uh, prayer lengths, are they short, long, all kinds of just very practical questions about prayer. We'll look at those uh, questions biblically, and then we'll look at a lesson, problems with prayer. Uh, Satan is very well aware that when Christians are praying, uh, he is uh, powerless. So he tries to do everything he can to interfere with prayer, either by keeping you from doing it or having you pray for the wrong things or have the wrong disposition, things like that. So we'll look at things where Satan is trying to ruin Christians praying. These are things we'll look at on into February. But first of all, let's just take a look at what biblical prayer is. Go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 5, near the end of your New Testament. 1 John is one of three uh, short letters the Apostle John wrote. Uh, he wrote the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But he also wrote to people that had been Christians for a while in the first century. Now, for a while means 30 years, maybe. Uh, and he wrote to them about challenges they faced concerning teaching that was wrong about Jesus. But he also wrote to encourage them. And he wrote three short letters. In fact, his third letter is only one chapter. Longest letter of these three short ones is uh, the first letter we'll look at. And we'll look at chapter 5 in just a moment. I want to just read, because this probably of all the verses in the Bible that captures the heart of prayer, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, uh, seems to, at least from my study. Look what John writes. We'll begin reading with verse 13, 1 John chapter 5, but we'll focus on 14. John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Then he says this, verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to to his will, he what? He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked from him. All right, let's look at verse 13. Um, first of all, John is writing to those who believe. Christian letters are written to believers, and prayer is for believers. Now, non-believers are never told, you just can't praise if it's some kind of um, high and mighty privilege of believers. That's not the point. But the instruction for prayer is given to believers because of their relationship with God. Now, sometimes non-believers will cry out to God in prayer and in desperation seeking His guidance, and there's nothing wrong with that. But as far as an ongoing daily privilege of prayer to seek God's attention and to seek His response, it's something that's been given to believers because of their relationship with Jesus. So he writes to them, 
who believe, or those who believe that they might know they have eternal life, but it's verse 14, but he says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. And that's the idea of praying to God or speaking to God. We have confidence that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We could restate this in other words by simply saying this, prayer is communication with the God of the Bible who created the world. Many people might have their own personal definition of prayer or their experience of prayer depending upon their religion, but the meaning of prayer that I want to address today and in our future lessons is simply prayer to the God of the Bible, not to some mystery God that someone's invented on their own. There's no real credibility to that, but when you pray to the God of the Bible, you're praying to the God who is revealed himself not only in creation but in this written revelation and done so with factual evidence with time-tested testimony where there's credibility behind what you're doing when you pray and there's credibility behind the person to whom you're praying there are many non-believers that ridicule this idea of prayer because they ridicule the idea of God they ridicule the idea that there's a supreme being out there that could hear, let alone respond, to what's going on in our life. And they would make fun of kind of what we're doing. Or there's some that simply disregard it. But we're engaging in something where we're speaking to the God who made us and the world and everything that we see about us. And it's the God of the Bible who has instructed us on what to pray for, how to relate to Him, so that's the meaning of prayer, and there's no other meaning that I have other than praying to the God of the Bible who created the world. But also, praying is different than offering thoughts and prayers. In our culture, um, as we try to express empathy with people, or sympathy on some level, many times, especially if we're kind of rushed in the moment, or there's something pressing, where we feel a need to respond, many people will say, well, our thoughts and prayers are with you, which is a very positive thing. And I don't want to in any way denigrate the intention of that statement. But many times people will say that even though they don't pray at all, really, or they may forget even that they said they would offer thoughts and prayers. They're mainly just trying to offer their empathy or their sympathy at the moment. And I understand that. But we don't want to ever get in the trap of saying that we're going to pray for someone. We're not really doing it. And just saying we're praying is the same thing. What we want to do as believers, again, John writes here in John 5, to those who believe, we want to engage in deliberate, meaningful, biblical prayer. And when we say we're going to pray for someone, we want to actually do it and not let us fall back into simply saying, well, my thoughts and prayers are with you. Because sometimes even the non-believing world in recent time has kind of ridiculed, especially in examples of gun violence, where uh, another school has been hit by a shooting of some kind, and they'll hear maybe some believer or partial believer say, well, our thoughts and prayers are with you, or hope our thoughts and prayers, where they want to see more done. And they say, we, we need more than thoughts and prayers. Well, they kind of have a point if they see that expression, thoughts and prayers, is simply a trivial thing, and no one's going to do anything more than just say that. They've got a good point. So as believers, we should be at the forefront of deliberately praying to God and doing so as God instructs. So those are two preliminary thoughts on biblical prayer as we'll address it. Well, now let's go into our thoughts this morning. Why pray? 
This is a very unique activity, an engagement. We're doing something that has no other parallel. Uh, there's nothing else we do that is like prayer. We're going to look this morning at two reasons to pray regardless of the answer. Many times, if you would ask a believer, well, why do you pray? Well, I want God to respond to this, or I want God to do th something about my situation, or I need healing, or I need a remedy, or I, need, I need an answer to my new diagnosis from the doctor, or something like that. Many times, a prayer can be put in this box where we see it as a way to get something from God because we don't know anything else we can do, or there's, we don't know what the answer is or else we'd be doing it. Well, let's see if God can do something about it. And we see God as simply someone to get something from because we can't get it anywhere else. And that's not how we want to see prayer, let alone how we want to see our God. We should be praying regardless of getting any visual or evidentiary answer to what we've been praying for. Would people still pray if things had not turned out the way they have so far for Damar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills? Thankfully, it looks like his life is going physically in the right direction. He's experiencing healing. He can breathe on his own. And it's always easy and encouraging to pray when we see a direct answer to prayer. And maybe you, on the night of that game, you took time out to pray. And, and those are wonderful moments. As I thought this week, there are some people that prayed for their children who've been struck with some illness and they prayed, and their church prayed, and their family prayed, and that child still died. And even though I don't want to take anything away from what has happened with DeMar Hamlin, I know there are many who ache because they wished what appears to be happening with him had happened with their spouse or their parent that they lost or their child that they lost. And there's some, because they have not received the kind of answer that DeMar Hamlin did, have not only rejected prayer, or they've minimized it in their life, they've rejected God. Uh, history shows individuals who, in their anger, have even taken an anti-God position simply because of some bad experience where God did not heal someone they thought should have been healed, and they don't understand why. So we need to understand we are to pray, and there's reasons to pray even when we don't see a tangible or visible answer. Let's talk about those two reasons. First of all, God expects you to pray. God expects you to pray. A lot to write down here if you want. Don't feel like you want to have to write it all down, but if you just want to kind of absorb it, feel free to do that too. But and when, I, when I say God expects you to pray, I'm not kind of walking over like, I would do a student, I expect you to sit up straight. When God instructs us on prayer, he's not telling us, I expect you to, as if it's some rule. You've got to pray, and then we're being forced to pray. God simply expects us to pray because it's the nature of the relationship. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I went to the doctor, went to Kaiser, because I got a bum knee, uh, and I'm trying to figure out what the best approach is to getting it fixed. So I made my appointment with the Kaiser, and I, I showed up, and um, 
the young doctor came in, and she had, a, I think, an intern with her, and they were both looking at my knee and everything and, and talking to me about the knee. And let's say all we did there is just, we just talked. Oh, man, Mr. Mulligan, you got, yeah, you got this knee? And, and, and you heard it? Okay, you heard it and everything. But the doctor never offered any remedy. <laughs> uh, that would be odd. I said, well, what do you want me to do about it? The nature of the doctor-patient relationship is you tell the doctor your problem and the doctor offers possible solutions. It's the nature of a relationship. If you're a sports athlete or if you're an athlete, if you're on a football team, you expect to go to practice. Uh, you expect to go to warm-ups. You expect to know the plays. It's just the nature of the relationship. And when I say that God expects us to pray, it's simply the nature of our relationship with God where there's an expectation that we will be doing it and we don't really have to be told to do it very much. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and then we'll look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 because both of these texts give that push, that is that God expects us to pray, but in a very healthy way where we don't have to be cajoled into praying, we don't have to be talked into it. We simply do because that's what a child of God does. Matthew chapter 6, as you uh, take your time going over there, you'll be turning uh, to the area that contains what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew's recording of one of the most famous extended teachings of Jesus. Many of Jesus' teachings came in response to a setting or a scenario. A lot of Michael's lessons, a lot of Jay's lessons will take something Jesus taught in response to someone who came to them. But in uh, Matthew, in chapters 4, I'm sorry, 5, 6, and 7, 5, 6, and 7, you have this extended teaching where Jesus took himself up on a mountainside and he spoke to people at extended length about different subjects. And it's one of the most well-known sections of Jesus' teaching, mainly because of its length and the number of topics. But he talks about prayer. And we'll just jump right in, verse 5, Matthew chapter 6. Verse 5, we'll go through verse 14. This kind of allow this to kind of sink in as far as the idea of expectation of God that we will be praying. Verse 5, Jesus says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 7, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Verse 9, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. 
And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Verse 14, for if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. We'll just stop here. Let's look at this expectation that people that believe in God and in His Son will be praying. Notice here Jesus begins in verse 5 by simply saying, and when you pray. And He says it three times. He says it there, and then verse 6, He says, but when you pray, and then verse 7, and when you pray, do this and this. He never says, well, if you're a praying person, <laughs> or if you feel like praying, or if you think prayer is a good thing, go ahead and do it this way. He says, and when you pray. And notice here, this is even before the cross. He's speaking to Jewish people who are in relationship with their Heavenly Father, who are already engaged in prayer. We see prayer going all the way back to the earliest days of Scripture. Prayer is simply a part of the life of people who are in a committed relationship to Him. They pray. So Jesus simply says, and when you pray. Do this. So that in and of itself must mean that prayer is important because it's simply expected. It's never presented in Scripture as an optional thing or if you're good at praying or if you're comfortable saying things or if you have time to pray, pray. Pray is simply always in an expectation setting and then we're told how to do it or we're reminded to maintain prayer. Herbert Lockyer, in his book, All the Prayers of the Bible, counted up how many times you could read about someone presenting something from God. And he counted 300, or I'm sorry, 650 times that a person either directly engaged in prayer or they at least expressed a thought to God where they're wishing something from God or asking something in some way. 650 examples of prayer in Scripture. There are at least 10 direct instructions. This would be an example right here of James chapter 5, where there's direct and many times prolonged instruction in prayer. Not too many subjects have that. The Lord's Supper. Uh, we have Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper in the Gospels, and then we have 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to give instruction. But there's not a whole lot more. So very extensive instruction given on prayer. So it must be important if God expects it and He continually instructs us on it and gives a lot of examples. Many examples of prayer completely turning around situations in the Bible. We'll look at some of those in later lessons. Prayer is connected to amazing scenes in Scripture where life was going one way for a person, but because they prayed to God, all of a sudden things changed. But then there are other examples of someone praying and something not changing. Even Jesus, when he prayed in the garden, he prayed three times that this cup of suffering might be taken from me. And God still had him go through the experience of the cross. Paul prayed three times, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that this thorn in the flesh might be taken from him. And Jesus simply said, my grace is sufficient for you. So even though there's 650 examples of prayer, that does not mean 650 examples of answers being given to prayer. The people who are in relationship with God, committed to Him, seem to know that's what you do, you pray. Whether that person is the Son of God or someone desperate, 
simply to turn their life around. They know to turn things over to God in prayer. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This again points you towards the latter part of your New Testament. Two letters were written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the ancient city of Thessalonica. Today on your map it would be Thessaloniki. Uh, you can visit there today if you take a Bible lands tour. You can see the ancient ruins of Thessaloniki. But there was a church there. And Paul writes to them. And we're going to look at chapter 5. So kind of put one finger right there in chapter 5. But notice here, Paul, because we're going to see a powerful statement about prayer. But just notice leading up to that, some things that are said about prayer in the earlier parts of the same book. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2 Paul says, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Again, this is chapter 1, verse 2. He says, we always thank God for all of you and we do what? We continually mention you in our prayers. So right at the very beginning of this letter where Paul addresses many powerful subjects, he says, we're always mentioning you in prayer. We're always thankful for you. So prayer is at the forefront of Paul's interaction with the Thessalonian church. He's praying for them, not just writing them letters, telling them what to do. He's praying for them as well. It's simply part of the relationship. Uh, look at uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Again, we're leading up to chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 9. Paul says, how can we thank God enough? That's prayer. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Verse 10. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. Notice verse 10. Paul says, Night and day we pray most earnestly that we might see you again. So here Paul and his companions are praying. We, we want to be back with the Thessalonian believers again. And they're praying night and day about it. They're not being told to do it. They're just doing it. There's no instruction that says night and day you have to pray. But that's how strong they sense they should be praying about this situation. And what are they asking? Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. They're asking God, Lord, please arrange in life a way that we can get transportation and time to get back to the Thessalonians. They're praying about a situation and they don't know for sure it's going to happen, but they're praying about it. They're simply doing what God expects them to do if they need something worked out where they don't have the power to work it out themselves. I don't pray for God to help me brush my teeth. I can do that pretty easily. But concerning illness, concerning relational situations, issues with my students I pray for, things like that, there's things that are out of my direct control. And Paul understands that, so they're praying night and day. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. He says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. We'll just pause there. He understands that God has a will and their idea is to tap into it. Now look at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 16. Here again is a text that 
underscores the expectation that God has that believers will simply pray. Verse 16, chapter 5. Paul says, rejoice always. Verse 17, very short. Pray what? Pray continually. Not sporadically. Not when you can think about it or when you feel like it. But pray continually. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So first, verse 16, rejoice. That is, be thankful for what you have and that what God has blessed you with. But then pray continually. Don't let it disappear in your life. Don't let it be something where, oh, you just have forgotten for three weeks to pray or, or you just don't sense the need to. He says you pray continually. He doesn't, pray every, he doesn't say pray every second. But the idea is maintain this in your life. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. We give thanks through prayer, primarily. Whether those circumstances are good or bad, we still give thanks for what we do have. Then he says, for this is God's will for you. His will is that we rejoice, but His will is also that we pray. So here we find this idea that God expects us to pray, but He doesn't hold it over our heads like it's some rite or ritual or some demanding obligation where, oh, we've got to pray now. Uh, something like that where it's an onerous thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a privilege that those who believe in God, <coughs> excuse me, those who are in a relationship with His Son are able to do. And they seize the moment to do so. They seize the moment to do so. Even when you don't have anything to say, pray. Maybe you like I have been in that situation before where you don't have anything to say or the emotions of the moment are overwhelming or you don't know what to say to God. Next week we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer and I think part of the reason for the Lord's Prayer is when you're looking for something to say to God, you can pray what Jesus instructed us to pray. Not in every prayer, but it's the heart of prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And to say those things, and there's a few times in my morning time when I spend time in prayer that I've just started out that way because I'm just not ready to express my own thoughts yet. So I'll just take the thoughts Jesus said to express and express those. You can never go wrong with that. Praying exactly what Jesus taught you to pray. So, with this idea of expectation to pray, even though you don't know what to say, and you don't feel like it, and even if you're just reading the scripture of the Lord's Prayer, do that. It's better than nothing. It's better than thinking, oh, I'll be fine today. Uh, I'll just get through it. I'll talk to my sister on the phone, or I'll, I'll talk to my brother. Uh, he always helps me with good ideas. Or I'll call this person, or I'll, I'll look at what this motivational speaker says online. Don't ever substitute something for the place of simply speaking to God in prayer. And we'll look at scenes in subsequent lessons where God honors even the most feeble prayer 
offered in the most desperate of circumstance. Because he expects to be the first one told about what you're dealing with. God expects that. Not to be the last one. He expects to be the first. No one cares more than your Heavenly Father about what you're going through. And no one can do more than your Heavenly Father about what you're going through. God expects you to pray. Here's the second reason to pray, regardless of the answer. You need to pray. God expects you to pray first, and then you need to pray second. We don't need to look at another text. We're going to look at the same one. I see three things in here that are simply reasons why we need to pray, whether or not we have to pray or not. There's three things about our situation in life and as believers that simply point out to us we need to pray. First of all, it reflects your identity as a believer. Prayer reflects your identity as a believer. Verse 18 again, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, who are believers, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you. And then he says, in Christ. This is God's will for you in Christ. God does not tell non-believers to pray. In fact, there's some scriptures we'll look through. If someone's living a rebellious life against God, and they're making no intention of trying to submit themselves to God or follow what he says, God says, don't pray. <laughs> you should not be praying, or at least you should not be expecting an answer. If you're trying to get around what he wants you to do, but still expect him to do things for you. <clears throat> but for believers, it is at the heart of our life. As believers, we're to be a praying people. Just as a football player plays football, or a baseball player uh, plays baseball, or a doctor practices medicine, or a teacher teaches, it's at the heart of what we do. We communicate with our Heavenly Father on a regular basis. Not just asking Him for things that we want to get, but communication, whether it be confession of sin at times, or simply praising Him for His place in our lives, or taking to Him heartbreak and suffering we're going through, knowing that He'll listen, but also asking Him to influence situations. It's at the heart of our identity. And this, there's simply no place for someone that says, I believe strongly in God and I'm... I'm in relationship with his son through baptism and faith and repentance, but nah, I don't need to pray. I'm, I, I'm a, I'm a do-it-myself type of person. I solve my own problems. And I know a lot of people like that because I'm one of them. I take pride in solving my own problems. I take pride in taking responsibility for myself and coming up with solutions. But there's some challenges in my life where I don't have the ability to solve. I wish there were things that were better between me and my children that are adults. And I've done what I can to try to make it better, but I need God's help. And for us who are self-sufficient people, and for us who work hard and take care of our own problems, and tend to fix everything for ourselves, we need to hear this the most. That prayer 
especially should be the key part of our life because we tend not to think we need it because we solve our own problems. But there's some things that cannot be solved. And for sure, the problem of sin. So when John tells us to confess our sins to God, we better take that seriously because sin is not made up for by simply doing a lot of good in the community. When we commit sin against God as believers, we need to confess that sin in prayer and seek God's forgiveness. And we don't just make up for sin on our own. So praying to God, whether it be confessing sin or seeking help, reflects our identity as believers. Non-believers expect us to pray. In fact, here's one of the blessings of being a praying people. Even though non-believers may not want to sit down with you for a Bible study, they will definitely appreciate you praying for them. Isn't that right, Loretta? I've never had anyone in my life say, oh, don't pray for me. Don't pray for me, John. Don't, 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 don't. They consider it an honor. Oh, if you, especially, you're, hey, I'm praying for what you're going through right now. Oh, thank you. That's what I hear. And I hear others, when they relate to me sharing prayer with someone they work with, they'll Non-believers are amazingly receptive to prayer. And I think that's what we saw this last week with the football player, DeMar Hamlin, where an entire stadium will go into reverent silence. And people that don't pray would take a knee. People respect prayer. Um, unless they're anti-God and anti-religion, they will respect prayer and at least be silent in the moment and they'll be receptive to you praying for them. That's one of the greatest doors I think we have to people in their hearts through the gospel is tell someone, I'm praying for you. And actually do that. Don't say, you're in my thoughts and prayers. Because I hear that all the time. Say, I'm praying for you. Don't say, well, I'm going to pray for you right now. Could you stand right here in front of everybody at work? And don't do things like that, but just say, hey, tonight when I go home, I'm going to pray for you because I know that's really heavy on your heart. That'll mean to the world to them. They expect you to be doing that. They may not respect a lot of other things you might believe as a Christian, but they will respect this. So don't hesitate to tell people you're praying. Don't fear being caught praying <laughs> at work. Don't fear being seen by someone else praying. People are captivated by that, and we see that. We saw that this week, and we, we see it continually because DeMar Hamlin's asking, please continue to pray for me. And we're going to see in football games today a lot of honoring of him and, and either a moment of silence for prayer, things like that. These are things to be cherished. So let prayer be part of your identity. Number two, as far as needing to pray, prayer reflects your dependence upon God. Prayer reflects your dependence upon God. Verse 23, Paul writes, May God himself, the God of all peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Look what Paul is saying here as the Spirit speaks through him in this message of truth to the Thessalonians. He says, may your entire spirit, that is your inner person, your soul, your body, may all of it be kept blameless. May God keep you pure. May he keep you solid. May he keep you in the faith till the day that 
the Lord returns, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, verse 24, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. And this is all on the heels of Paul saying, pray continually. Every time you pray, whether it be a very short prayer of thankfulness, or you say, God help me, please. Or you spend time in extended prayer. Every time you pray, you're communicating to God and you're communicating to yourself, Lord, I need you. And then you're not self-sufficient. And you can just do all your own things and solve your own problems. Nor are you left in despair without any help. I mean, some, I mean we live in a culture now where people in despair just will end their own lives thinking that no one cares for them. Right about just last night, a young 18-year-old girl took her life, and she had a big career ahead of her. She took her life in a sense of despair. But those, and it's just painful to the core to think someone could think that lowly of themselves and to feel unconnected. There's times we feel bad about ourselves for sure. That as believers, we know that despite the awfulness of our situation and how bad our feelings are, that our God still cares. As the song says that Nathaniel led, what a friend we have in Jesus. All the things that he can bear for us. So when we pray, we're expressing to God, Lord, I need you. And the, the, psalm that, or the song that Nathaniel sang that's based on a psalm, unto thee, O Lord, is the direct words of one of the psalms where David wrote, expressing his dependence upon God, though he was the king of Israel, the greater we are, the greater sense of dependence we should have. Some of our greatest presidents, Abraham Lincoln, was a devout man of prayer, because a lot of times the greater you are, the more you know you need God. And not everyone great thinks that way. But it's a measure of maturity. It's a measure of being where God wants us to be, to always be praying, because it shows our dependence upon the God. Upon God. And it also shows we believe that He can influence a situation. God does not want to sing, well, it'll all just work out. Oh, it just works out. Or, well, it'll go one way or the other. What God is telling us through prayer is that He will influence a situation. That doesn't mean He will always answer every prayer just as we ask. No parent does that for the child when they're five, give them whatever they're asking for. But God will give us what we need. And many times that will align with what we're asking. Or even when he doesn't, there's a reason for it. That we need to have that sense of dependence upon God, that we're not just out here all alone, nor are we out here simply doing everything ourselves. Both are equally bad. Thinking you're all by yourself, and thinking it's all up to you. Prayer brings us back to where we need to be. We have our role in life to live, to live by faith. But God, here it says, who is faithful, verse 24, the one who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. He will do His part in our lives. Prayer is a way of expressing we know that. It expresses dependence upon God. The third reason we need to pray is it reflects your love for others. Uh, verse 25, 1 Thessalonians 5, and we're almost finished. Look what Paul says at the beginning of this, or I'm sorry, at the end of this letter. Verse 25, 
1 Thessalonians 5. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all of God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Think about this. This is the powerful Apostle Paul. The hand-picked, chosen ambassador of Jesus Christ. The writer of 13 letters of the New Testament. The man who in the book of Acts incurs one situation of persecution after another. People trying to kill him. People nearly beating him to death. Unswayed, undeterred. One of the strongest persons I've ever read about will express, in verse 25, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Here not only we see that sense of dependence upon God, where he asks other people, please pray for us. He's invoking this relationship where we are all in this together. And when we pray for one another, as Nathaniel encouraged us to do uh, earlier, and to remind us of this responsibility, we're expressing love towards each other. Yes, at times we'll need to help each other financially, and we'll take care of necessary goods, or we'll give someone a ride, or we'll let someone live with for a while, and, and those are exactly what we ought to be doing. But sometimes the best thing we can do for someone is simply pray for them. Oftentimes we'll hear Loretta talk about a prayer list that she has, and I'm aware of other Christians. My sister has one where she's constantly updating this prayer list. Or someone will have on post-it notes things uh, they know they need to be praying for people that need to prepare. And they're doing that seriously. Um, it's an expression of love. It's not a duty, even though it's a responsibility. It's not something that hangs over our head, but it's something we're privileged to do. And we need to do that for one another. Because sometimes we, sometimes we don't know how best to help someone else. Do they need money? Do they not need money? Uh, do they need me listening to them, or do they really want to hear me at all? We, we don't always know what the best thing is for somebody else, right? But we do know we can always pray for them. Even when they said, oh, I don't need any help. Oh, no, 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 don't call me. You can still pray for them. No one can keep you from praying. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, go into your room in private. And the God who sees everything, he will know what you're doing. And that's the beauty of prayer. Again, it transcends everything. You can do for someone even if they don't want it. And God hears the words of the believer. So, reflect upon the fact that you need to pray. God never says you have to feel like praying to do it. Most of the Psalms are written in great anguish where someone probably did not feel like talking to God, but in desperation, they did. You don't always have to know what to say. In fact, many times you won't. Always have the Lord's Prayer there. You'll always have something God says. Pray this. But many times the words come as the heart opens up. Never think you're going to pray for the wrong thing. If your heart is right and you, you understand generally what God wants in your life, His will, you'll be praying for the right things. You don't have to pray for everything in one prayer. You can just be thankful. 
Sometimes if you don't know what to ask for, just be thankful for what you do have. Be thankful for what is going well in your life, even when a lot of things are not going well. Be thankful for what is. And you'll know when you end praying that not only have you taken your prayers to the person who can respond the best and that cares the most, you'll also relieve yourself of a tremendous burden of trying to hold it all in. Or trying to get other people to empathize who didn't return the call or didn't follow up with the text or, or late to their emails. God is always there at any moment to listen to his children. What a privilege we have. What a blessing. And in lessons to come, we'll look closer at this great spiritual exercise of prayer that has no parallel. We're going to sing a song now to encourage you to uh, respond to God in whatever way you know you need to. Everything we do in our Christian life is a matter of faith. We do it because we believe God expects us to do this or wants us to do this or tells us to do it. And our life is always the process of correction. And we sing a song at the end of our service to encourage us to keep doing the right thing because we're not going to get this anywhere else. But we get it here when we assemble together with our brothers and sisters.